as a film professor, who do you feel like film school is for? Because it's not for everyone. In your opinion, who do you feel like film school is a good fit for? Film school is mostly useless. Um, <laughs> and I say this as somebody who teaches at one. Welcome back to another episode of the Rough Cut Club. I am your host, Joey Nakotra, here, the dynamic duo, back with my friend Shane Wright. Zammer, Shane, how are you doing today, bro? Great, man. Loving the Dallas weather. We've got a nice, balmy 70 degrees. We get, like, straight from blazing hot summer to right into winter super fast, and now is, like, one of the most beautiful primetime seasons of the year. We're going to enjoy all five days of it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, well, jumping into today's episode, man, uh, I was actually reading an article from American Cinematographer Magazine. And if you have read uh, the ASC magazine, you'll know that in the beginning of each magazine, the president writes a letter to everyone reading the magazine. Um, and so I'm actually going to read an excerpt that I was reading from the magazine from the president. And it says, no one succeeds without somebody rooting for you. Thinking back on our career, we know that for each project we did, someone wanted us to succeed. We believe it is a truism that no cinematographer succeeds without somebody wanting success for them. That backer can be a formal mentor, a random collaborator who wanted to further a career, but it takes support and encouragement to succeed. And for this reason, it is wise to cultivate as broad of a network as you can while developing your career. And I thought that was super awesome. And I just want to, uh, one, give you some of your flowers while you're still here because Shane has actually been a mentor that believed in me before anyone else to help slingshot my career. And so I wanted to encourage some of the filmmakers that are listening to get connected with either a mentor or a company and find someone that believes in you to start building your career and provide opportunities for you to get to the next level, man. So I thought that was super dope from that. Dude, they, I love those magazine. flowers, bro. That was really nice. And uh, and man, that's what this kind of podcast is about, yeah, too. Dude. We just want to get connected with more and more filmmakers and even our listeners yeah, and provide value uh, in the marketplace for everyone yep. uh, so that we can all continue to grow and uh, improve our, our craft yeah. together. So, man, that's a and shout out to the yeah. magazine, right? That's yeah, man. A, uh, great article, great, great note. Super letter. cool, man. Well, anyway, um, freaking excited for the guests that we have here today. About to welcome a producer, director, DP, uh, production company owner, uh, owner of Nice Shirt Media. Great name. Great name. Welcoming to the show, Garrett Sammons. Welcome to the show, my friend. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be here. Man, we're excited to get into some of your story today. I randomly was flipping through uh, B&H Magazine and saw that you were uh, one of like the top public speakers in the game. And I was like, I got to connect with this guy. And so shout out to B&H for uh, connecting the dots for us, man. Yeah, they they, they rule over there. That was uh, the first build conference. I think rumor has it there might be more coming up, but it was definitely kind of like a, a big event that they wanted to do celebrating like their... 50th anniversary and and it was it was super super cool to be a part of i love it man so how, just, i mean before we even get into some of your story how did you even get connected uh to do you know an event like that man okay so uh we'll go back a ways so i love posting like a lot of like bts content on my social um 
I have found that like, it's a cool way of like getting connected with other filmmakers. People love to see like what other people do on set, how their sets function, like how that's different from their stuff. And one of the things that I started doing was every time I'd put up any sort of social content, I would tag whoever the brands were that were associated with like the gear that was in there. Um, and so I was doing that for a couple of years and just every time I posted a photo, I'd throw something up. And then every once in a while, one of those brands would like reach out, they'd like the image and they'd be like, Hey, are you cool if we repost it? Um, and so we kind of would just let that happen for a while. And then finally, I, I, I really wanted to work with some of these brands. So what I would say is like, Hey, yeah, uh, you're more than welcome to repost. Why don't you give me your email? And then I will email you like the high res version of the photo. Mm. And that was just a way for like me to snag an email with the brand of like who I wanted to talk to. And then I would use that to kind of like leverage of a further conversation, um, down the line. So we did that. And then, uh, we got connected with Videndum, which is like a big company that owns, I mean, they own like Anton Bauer, Light Panels, Sockler, O'Connor, Teradek, Small HD. Like they own a ton of different brands or whatever. So we got connected with them. And so then I started doing public speaking events and educational content for some of their brands. Mm. Um, so when B&H decided that they wanted to put on this conference or whatever, they reached out to Videndum because obviously they're a huge manufacturer and B&H is a massive retailer. And then that's how I got connected with the B&H folks was, was through kind of that connect. So it was kind of like a long roundabout way of, of getting there. But that's how I got connected to them. That's a dope story, and and in that story, you lay some great uh, lead gen sales advice. So I love that little piece about yeah, always get the emails. Yeah, that's a super uh, ninja yeah. ninja tactic, uh, and, and just goes to show like the power of social media too, and like posting some of those behind the mm, yeah. scenes content. So often it's easy to make the content and not promote the you know the process of how it was made, and so awesome or so often the process of how it was made can be one of your best lead gen tactics that you can deploy. Yeah. So listeners and viewers out there, tag your mm -hmm. brands and equipment. And Joey and I have been doing that for a while. I think, I think we've been, we've got a couple of pickups from, we have. from some brands. I think, uh, uh, Glidecam yeah. uh, featured some of your stuff and, and, uh, I think we got some, some, uh, free swag and stuff uh, 100%. from, from different companies. Definitely. There's proof from Garrett yeah. as well that it works. I tag love your it, brands. Man. Well, dude, uh, well, I, I can't take full credit for it. I got to uh, shout out my buddy, uh, Chris Vandershaft. So, uh, Chris VTV on, on all social or whatever. He does a yeah. whole bunch of like phantom slow-mo, yeah. uh, bolt arm stuff. So he's so doing sad. really cool stuff. And, and I learned that from him. Yeah. Chris is the goat. He's awesome, man. His, his phantom slow-mo so stuff awesome. is, yeah. um, oh, watch that all yeah. day. <clears throat> Well, dude, I want to hear a little bit about how you got kind of mm -hmm. into the industry, what you're doing now, your public speaking, you're, you know, around the world and back doing this and that kind of want to hear a little bit about how you got into the industry and what you're doing now, man. Sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in LA. So, uh, you know, kind of in the, the heart of the deal. Um, and then I grew up on like commercial film shoots. So I grew up kind of like seeing how like the big oiled machines work for like car ads and tech ads and that kind of stuff. So like from junior high, I was like, this is the dopest thing in the world. There's nothing else I'd rather do than this. Cause mm -hmm. like, how cool is this? So, um, when I was 20, I, I moved to Michigan. So kind of like the greater Detroit area, which is where I'm at now. Um, 
there was a, a big tax incentive for the film industry. I moved here. So I sold my business that I had in LA. I moved here and, um, it's funny to move out of LA to kind of make it in this industry, mm -hmm. but hands down the, the, the best thing I ever did. Um, so I moved here and then when I got here, cause I didn't have any connections here. I didn't have the network. Cause you guys at the, at the top were talking about the value of a network and that was massive. So I uh, enrolled in a film school, even though I was already a working professional, just so that way I could start to meet people who were doing or wanted to do the same thing uh, that I was doing. So got halfway through that program. They asked me if I wanted to start teaching there. So then I just kind of stopped being a student and then started teaching there. And that was 10 years ago or so. And uh, started my, my new company, which is Nice Shirt. And uh, have been nonstop since then. I love it, brother. Man, that is a a crazy story. And I got a couple of things on that I want to touch on. But before we jump off of even the LA piece, I think it's really fascinating that you had to or felt like you had to move out of the industry to make it because so many people feel like they have to move to LA in order to make it. And so I kind of wanted you to expand even on on that piece and, and really why you felt the need to move away and why Detroit. Well, I, I guess you said the tax sure, incentive piece, yeah. but like, why? Um, yeah. yeah, kind of further that for me. I mean, I'll, yeah, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but if if you've spent any time in LA, right, uh, every single person you encounter is somehow connected to the industry, is in the industry, or is trying to do the exact same thing you're trying to do. So every time you go to Starbucks, your barista is also a, a copywriter. Every time you know you go to a restaurant, they're also a director, right? Like every single person is gunning for the same work that you're gunning for. And so to stand out in a very large and very saturated market is hard to do. Um, so especially when you're just getting started, especially when you're just kind of learning, there is a value to kind of being around the the system. There's a there's a value in, in being connected to that world. Um, but it can be just as hard, if not harder, to make it in that kind of environment than anywhere else in the country. And with the internet, and if there's anything that we've learned from, from the pandemic, the internet has made the world so incredibly small. Like mm. we are so unbelievably hyper-connected regardless of where we are, you know, located. Um, so it was easier to make it in a smaller market than it was to try to make it in a larger market. And I mean, there's other, you know, like socioeconomic stuff involved, right? Cost of living mm. yeah, in LA is absolutely bananas. So the amount of money that you have to make to then offset your cost of living is insane. I could make half of what I would make in LA here and live twice as well, just because the way that life is structured when you're not there is so much different. Um, so, yeah, so I left to make it because I knew that I could make a bigger splash in a smaller pond and hone my skills and hone my craft. And then when there's a need to go to L.A. or go to New York or go to Atlanta or Houston or, you know, wherever else you need to go, it, it, you know, you're hopping on a plane and, and you're there. Um, I think that it was much more important to 
be at the epicenter, like to be in Atlanta or, or Houston or New York or LA, um, when everything was networking in person, but so much of networking now is done remotely. Like I, I have become friends with other YouTubers and content creators and, and, other film personalities and I've been friends with them for years and I've either only met them once in person or I've, you know, never met them in person. So like we talked about Chris earlier, Chris is a buddy of mine. Chris and I chat all the time. I've never met Chris in person. Right. Um, Brandon Washington is a guy I've been connected with, uh, you know, on YouTube and we've chatted all the time for the last couple of years. And I just met him for the first time in New York at that B and H thing. Wow. So it, you know, the, the internet has made everything so much smaller. You don't have to anywhere in order to make it. And for most people, I think, especially when you're starting to cut your teeth, it's better to not be there Yeah, because mm-hmm. getting discovered on the internet is easier than getting discovered in person. Yeah. I love that, man. I actually, I guess this was probably five years ago now, maybe six, but at, I think it was, I think it was five. Uh, I actually had plans to move out to LA to chase the dream. I think I even like sat you down and was like, Hey bro, I'm like thinking about doing this. And like, you know, six months or whatever. And then fast forward through those six months, so many things were lining up here that I was going to be going out there to pursue that it didn't make sense to leave, you know, the blossoming career that I had going in Texas to go and chase that with zero contacts, you know, in a place that, you know, is supposed to be like the golden city for filmmaking and everything. And it is, but there's so much competition there that uh, there are a lot more opportunities to make it in a smaller, you know, being a bigger fish in a smaller pond uh, than vice versa. And so I think that's super cool, man. Garrett, thanks for the masterclass on the LA thing, because we've debated this for a long time. I'm like, look, man, we can do what we need to do in Dallas. The world is small. It's, it's like the reverse gold rush. Everybody's moving out of LA to make it. And so, you know, he and I, and yes, like six years ago, he was saying, I'm probably going to leave. I'm like, I'm going to have to tie this guy up, throw him (laughs) in my trunk until he says he's going to stay in Dallas. But you know what? Opportunities came. We got him on some big stuff. And so he's like, oh, I I guess I can hang out in Dallas. He loves it here now. Well, and it's fun because like, you know, some of the network that I've built here, right, you know, like they didn't grow up in LA, so they don't have that perspective. And so Mm. like, I've been preaching this for, you know, a decade of like, you don't have to be there to to do Mm. this. Yeah. And I've had friends here go move there. You know, they're like, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to make it, you know, whatever. And and six months later, they're back. Like, they're like, yeah, Yeah. no, I can't. It, It doesn't work out there, you know. I think it's different if you are going there for a job. So, like, I've got a buddy, uh, June. He's a great director. And he moved to L.A. as a director, but he had the the job lined up. He had the connection lined up. He had the agency representation lined up. So, he was going there already with kind of, like, an established network and ecosystem that was already in place for him to succeed but he built that all while he was working here in detroit so yeah. i think that like it's one thing to go with the pipe dream of like i'm gonna make it big in hollywood and it's a it's a different thing entirely to like do the groundwork and get to a point to where it's like actually to to do the thing that i'm trying to do i need to actually be there that's a very different thing i think i think to play devil's advocate to this whole conversation the one thing that i think always was in the back of my mind was that they're like all of the top dogs in the world who are 
you know, directing the most elite films ever made that are DPing the most technical projects that are happening to date are all in this ecosystem. And I think that the, the big pull is to just be the small fish in, in, in a pond. Uh, cause there is a beauty to that too, where it's like, if you can just absorb a fraction of the information that you're, you know, you're learning from some of the best in the world, eventually that's going to help accelerate your career as well. And I think that was probably the driving force for me is to like, I want to be the dumbest person in the room again. Um, because there's a beauty in, you know, having a blossoming career, but not being challenged as much. And then also being like a small fish, uh, fish, a small fish in a big pond and learning from some of the greatest in the industry. And so I think that was really where the war inside me was. Garrett, I still got some work on Joey, it sounds like, but you know, Hey, I appreciate your, uh, your, your wisdom on that. And I, I couldn't agree more, man. And yeah. I, and I want to throw this in on a, on a, like a commercial production company like us and, and, and you guys, like, it's like after t the pandemic, you know, to your point, like before I was going to do my closing, you know, sales, my, my pitches and all that in person time, we have more time now. Not only are we more connected, we can, I can do a sales call with somebody mm -hmm. in Arizona or New York and maybe they're shooting locally. Maybe we're going to go shoot there. And we can do that so much quicker. I don't have to be in person. I don't lose the the transit time. And so I have more time to build those pitch decks. And, and you know, we're, we're all these different ecosystems now are so connected. And I just remember when the pandemic rolled around, I was like, dude, I should have bought some stock in Zoom. And, you know, <laughs> Riverside, the app we're using now for the podcast, all the virtual yeah. stuff, man. Because even corporate world has adopted that way of life now that's totally normal to not wear pants and do a meeting <laughs> right. you know on zoom and that is totally fine and so and i love i love this new yeah. world one great thing <clears throat> that came out of the pandemic was yeah. the virtual uh concept of of doing business this way yep i love it man i love it um speaking of I business i don't remember the last time i had a a, a closing meeting in person like mm. even for local i don't know the yeah. last time like Everything like I was on a call before this podcast where uh, two of the people were in St. Louis, one was in Phoenix, one was in Detroit, and one was literally three minutes down the road from me. And we were all in this kind of collective, you know, Zoom meeting. And, and that's how they all are now. We did a, a shoot peak pandemic. We did a shoot um, with WeWork where mm. the director was in Israel, the producer was in New York, the subject that we were talking to was in Detroit. And so I was patching in producer, director, director was directing remotely through this thing. And like, we, we built a teleprompter with like FaceTime into it. So that way they could like all talk and whatever. It was wild. But the fact that like, we're so connected now uh, allows for a style of production that's faster, that's more nimble, and and it kind of cuts out some of the bloat that was kind of like floating, especially in like the commercial space mm. pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, man. It's it, I love it, and it, I I remember that too. I had you know producers on Zoom, and we would have the laptop up so they could see you know here's the here's video Billy. Oh man, it was it was quite an interesting time and and a lot of virtual recordings man we were doing riverside recordings for some of our clients when it was all on lockdown and stuff i mean the you know the media needs didn't stop you know it's just how we went about it changed and, and i think for the better now like you said i think yeah. it's created a, a great workspace for us speaking of the workspace and business so nice shirt 
media. Where did you, why'd you, how'd you come up with a name? I, I gotta, I love like origin stories and names, you know, and meanings. So, uh, why a nice shirt? You know, I, I, I wish I could take, uh, credit for, for being creative and all of that. Really, it was, um, kind of a, just a dumb thing that happened that kind of made it all work. Uh, we were, I had a business partner when I started this company and we were going to his family's house and he hadn't seen his family in forever. And so we all walk in and, uh, his dad goes through and gives everybody hugs and then just looks at his son, who's my, my best friend. And he looks at him and he just goes, nice shirt. And then just like left and, and the room, like no, hello, no hug for the son. No, like nothing. It was like the most casual, like, I know who you are, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and we were just, it, we were so tickled by it that that was just the, the name that we came up with. But so it's not a great story, but that's how we ended up. With uh, it. I love that story though. That's it's got a lot of yeah. meaning and it's it's fantastic. And I'm over here laughing, man. That's that's great. Uh, I love it. Nice yeah. shirt. Well, uh, one of the things on your website for nice shirt that I kind of wanted to pick your brain on is. I think one of the things that you kind of pride yourself in in guiding clients through is creative strategy is how mm. is how you word it. And so I kind of wanted to talk to you about like what does that even mean? Why is it important? Obviously creative strategy is important, but I want to hear from you like where the need is right now for clients to have that strategy because everyone can make a video now of day nowadays like you know all cameras look pretty dang good right out the gate you can throw you know one light up and you got enough you know good lighting for social media content but the strategy in how you roll all of this out is what matters at the end of the day more than anything else and so i kind of want to hear from you what kind of creative creative strategy you're providing and why that's a pillar stone in your business great question uh big uh question so when i first started in marketing and advertising because i started in marketing and advertising kind of backed my way into into video um it was right at like the dot-com web 2.0 boom and it was a time where it, it not everybody had a website so really what it was was everybody needs to have a website so it, it was convincing clients of the value of being on the internet that then transitioned into now everybody has a website so having a website isn't enough your website needs to be responsive it needs to be you know fast it needs to be high quality like you everybody's got one so you have to differentiate yourself somehow mm -hmm. um shortly on the tail of that is when you know video on the internet became a thing where like now video can be online and not everybody had video. So then it was this whole push of, well, you should have video. Video is important. You, we, you know, you, we can sell things at this much higher ROI. You know, your KPI hits can be, you know, XYZ, all of that stuff. We've now entered the space where everyone has video, mm -hmm. right? So, so it, it's kind of this cyclical thing to where, Having video content is now assumed, right? You, if you aren't on social media, you're probably not as reputable of a, a, a consumer facing company as you otherwise would be, right? So it's no longer convincing clients of the value of video. Everybody has video. And now that everybody has video, we now have to rethink how we approach video because just having it isn't enough. So this is where 
creative strategy comes in because as you guys know, and as filmmakers know, the production portion of filmmaking is the most costly, right? That's the most expensive part. We can scale pre-production. We can scale post-production pretty fluidly and, and make those kind of margins work. But when it comes to the actual production, there are a list of hard costs. So convincing clients or, or discussing with clients hey, we need to invest X amount of dollars for X amount of content, right? That conversation really isn't about how many deliverables you're providing. The value in what we do in the commercial space is what the return on that investment is, right? That what, what that actual, what are I getting in response to it, right? So, from the outset of whenever we're kind of putting together projects, whether they're full scale campaigns, whether we're kind of coming in and assisting agencies on the production side of a, kind of a multi-channel campaign, however it is that we're, we're structuring this, you want to make sure from the outset that you have trackable metrics, right? You have to establish with a client what does success look like with this campaign, right? Like what is what are we actually doing here? Anybody can have a pretty video, right? There there are within 10 square miles of where I live, there's probably 150 videographer, filmmaker, self-starters, right? The value that that Nice Shirt provides isn't just in the fact that we are producing high quality video content at a price that's that's hard to beat. What we're providing for you is an asset to help your business, whether it's business to business or business to consumer, uh, thrive, right? So by establishing what a success metric looks like from the outset, then we can then strategize kind of in reverse of how do we attain that goal, right? If we're trying to increase sales by 15%, if we're trying to drive sales to this particular product line, if we're trying to hit this amount of revenue in this quarter, whatever those look like, right? And it can be something as simple as brand exposure, right? So if you're working with startups, it could be, hey, we're trying to get this much inbound traffic to our website, just trying to get people to know who we are. Once you have that, we can then reverse engineer what the video needs to be in order to do that thing. And that is the creative strategy component of if this is the goal and this is who we're trying to talk to, how do we communicate this to these people in a way that makes them want to do the thing that our client is set out to do, which is not something that's intrinsically filmmaking, right? We're now kind of more leaning into the world of, of advertising and marketing. But I think that in 2023, going into 2024, any filmmaker who is not solely working in the narrative space needs to have their toes in both kind of the business world and in the, the creative world if you want to have a sustained career, right? I can make a pretty video once, and you, okay, we spent the money, we have this pretty video, great, it's not doing that anything for us. That's not going to build a long-term relationship, right? That's not going to build a, a retainer client that I'm going to have for 10 years. That's going to be a turn and burn. And it's really, really hard to make a living if you're constantly trying to find new clients and constantly trying to convince new people who don't know you that they need your services. Uh, if you can bring a value add 
to a brand, if you can make sure that that value exchange is equal, that they feel that they, for their money, are getting something that is of equal or greater value, that's then how you can build long-term clients, you know, even through a pandemic, right? Like we all took a huge step back, but now kind of as we're coming out on the other side and people are like, hey, you know, we can actually live our lives again. Um, clients that I worked with in, you know, 2015, 16, 17 that I haven't talked to in a long time are now kind of coming back. Hey, we, we really want to go back and do more stuff because we liked the relationship that we had, right? So creative strategy is, is wedding the two. It's, it's the action item with the KPI. And how do we marry those two in a way that makes people feel like they're not being sold to, uh, but still, you know, speaks the language that we're trying to, to put out there. I totally know why this guy's on the top 60 list of the B&H uh, public speakers, <laughs> because uh, Garrett, you and I like say the same thing uh, in all my sales pitches. It's it's start with why, you know, it's it's find out your KPIs because I want you to call me again. Like, I don't want to do a one off. And if you don't have clear goals, then I'm going to help you find them. And if you can't find them, I'm not going to do the project with them. But you said it so eloquently, like I'm going to just replay what you said over and over again. So on my next pitch. The dot com thing, it's so true, man. Like the website, I was back, you know, it doing this uh, kind of when not everybody had websites. In fact, I was doing, I was building websites for people at first because I was like, I'm a video and photo guy, but they're like, well, we want a website. And I'm like, I'll figure out how to do that too. And so we were doing that because we were like, you need websites. But that comparison is so true. Like everybody has websites now and now everybody has videos and you have to be different. And that is where that creative strategy comes into play to make sure that they're going to get some KPIs out of their and, and ROI at the end of the day, they've got to have that return on investment um, for them to call you again and for you as a company to stay in business. So dude, yeah, let um, <laughs> rewind this, play it over again. If you've, if you've watching or listening to this, that was money, money yeah, masterclass right there. Shane is tapping me under the table. Like he's <laughs> freaking saying everything perfectly right now yeah, <laughs> he's like yeah. so hyped but oh yeah this is this is one of my favorite episodes now well this and, is great. and dude that like it's so like we shane and i have this conversation all the time with like trying to find you know the creative strategy that's going to work for an individual project and right now there's more of a demand for people to be active especially on social media um with like constant content coming out and whether you're, you know, a solopreneur or, you know, a, a small business startup, even as a filmmaker, um, like you have to do the same things for yourself, uh, from a creative brand strategy wise that you're also doing for your clients, whether they're a small business or whether they're, you know, an influencer, entrepreneur, whatever, you have to do all the same creative strategies for yourself as you do for them. And so I'm curious, are there some like, like top level generic basic creative strategy that you recommend for, you know, most people that are trying to be successful in marketing themselves online? Yeah. Great, great question. So, um, native content is a, is a thing that we preach a lot. So just because it works on one channel doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to convert to another. Uh, and, and, a, and a good example of this is the difference between the way people engage with Instagram versus the way that they engage with TikTok, mm. right? 
Instagram is all about the aesthetic. And no matter how hard uh, Meta or Facebook or whatever they're called tries to make Instagram into a, a Snapchat or a TikTok or whatever else, Instagram is for the vibe. It is for the aesthetic. So the content that we produce that's going to be on Meta channels is going to be polished. It's going to look good. It's going to be cut really well. It, it's going to fit that aesthetic and that vibe. TikTok, however, hates the aesthetic, right? The, 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 the more polished something is on TikTok, generally speaking, the less well it works because it looks and feels like an ad. Mm. So we even did a case study with a client, um, where they were unsure of kind of how they wanted that deliverable to be, but it was going to be a, a TikTok series. So we rigged out a cinema rig and in the front of the rig where we had the, the, the camera, we then flipped a phone upside down to get this lens as close to the lens of the, the cinema camera as we could. And we set up and we filmed side by side, both on the phone and on this. And then we just did sound sync and post cut it all together and then had duplicates of all of the deliverables, both with the phone and with the, the cinema camera. And so we had this really nice, really polished version. And we had this like really smartphone looking version and the framing was the same and the content was the same and, and everything else. And the phone version on TikTok outperformed the cinema camera six to one. Hmm. Um, and it was solely because you have to understand the market that you're going into. You have to understand who the audience is. So for anybody who is working on self-promotion, right, whether it's for themselves or their brand or, or their client for that matter, um, it's not a one size fits all, right? The, early on, there was this idea of, well, if we frame everything wide and we oversample our resolution, we can then just reframe for vertical, for horizontal, for square, and then just kind of, you know, take everything out that way. Um, that is not as successful as making native content for channels. So going back to that conversation you have to have with the client at the very top, in addition to understanding what success looks like, prioritizing what verticals and what channels they are prioritizing both for their brand and their brand's industry of like, where are the people that you're trying to reach? Mm -hmm. That should also inform the process of the content that you create because the stuff that I produce for TikTok is massively different than the stuff that I produce for YouTube, for broadcast television, for uh, Facebook or Instagram, right? All of that stuff is all built for different people. So you got to make sure that you're making content that speaks to those people. Dude, mic drop moment right there. That yeah. was so good. I've never actually thought to take a phone and rig it upside down to shoot the exact same content. Uh, most of the time, what we do is we'll take our actual camera when we're doing like social media content, we'll just turn it vertical um, and we'll shoot everything vertical, right. but we still, you know. It still is really polished, yeah. It still yeah. is, it, yeah, it's, you know, shoot with full frame camera. It's got a full frame right. look to it, you know. So, right. so we've even dabbled in, you know, we do some ad campaigns for some of our clients, smaller clients, and so, you know, A-B testing, you know, we call them like the the polished right video, which is the show the production value, very nice. And then we do, you know, an iPhone, you know, video, and it it's like and it's self shot. Sometimes we're like, you're gonna be walking doing this, you're gonna be you're walking downtown, and you're talking about X Y Z product, 
and we run those tests and it depends on your target audience and the platforms, but it's so interesting. It is not a one size fits all, you know, it's so interesting watching those campaigns and going, you know, and even in the campaign, is it a retarget or is it your first, you know, is it a cold, like they don't even know who you are people respond to the crappy videos so much more than the polished. And then in the retarget, or at least in this one campaign that we did, and then the retarget, they respond. We get more views, more click-throughs in the polished version, you know, because now they see that you invest, you know, this company, this brand has invested in video. But at first, nobody wants to be sold to. So if you're running an ad campaign, you know, it's like they don't, it doesn't, nobody wants to look like an ad, which is interesting. In fact, lastly, I just, we just did a broadcast spot for this uh, uh, company and, and we've been, you know, it's one of those clients we've had for four or five years and made it through the pandemic with them and, you know, KPIs and ROI and the last couple of projects we've done, they've asked us like, Hey, can you make this look less good? You know, yeah. cause they're, they're chasing after that. Like we need it to kind of like, don't bring out the red cameras and stuff. We want it to look kind of crappy, you know, because we're, we're getting better response metrics on the, the worst video. And then I got to go tell Joey, you know, he's DP on most <laughs> of the stuff I direct. And I'm like, Hey man, uh, can you shoot with your iPhone? You know, that's what the client needs. Dude. Yeah. It's, it's such a weird time to be a DP where there's like a higher need for video than ever before. And the, the demand is for me to shoot on my iPhone. Like it's just, but there's a good mix. There's, there's purpose for every (laughs) platform, for every target audience. You know, it really, it, it all depends on, on who you're trying to reach. And then, like you said, what platforms are they consuming their content on? Yeah. And even like, I'm on all platforms. Like I, but I go to TikTok for, you know, that's my lunch break. Like I go just to like turn the mind off. So any ad, you know what I mean? I'm like, skip, skip. Like I'm not watching that. But, you know, Instagram, exactly right. right. I'll go and kind of get into the aesthetic and the vibe and see, and then like go down the rabbit hole of like, who is this filmmaker? And like, let me go to their website. So it's a whole different process depending on what platform you're on. Yeah, so true, so true, man. Gosh, I'm learning so much on this too. This is great, Gary. Keep it, keep it going. What, Joey? I love it. Ask man. more strategy questions. Yes. This well, is. I'm just absorbing it. Well, dude, right even uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have small production companies similar to Nice Shirt that listen to the podcast and are 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 our target audience. And so I'm curious what some of the most impactful things that you have done for your business to help like you gain traction and grow as a small production company have been, uh, you know, throughout your career. Uh, great, great question. So going back to kind of my roots, uh, of, of kind of like the early web kind of deal, um, the best thing that you can do for your small business it, first of all have a website please for the love of god have a website um but but pay for uh search engine optimization there and there's two there's two kinds we're getting a little bit into the weeds here um don't invest necessarily in pay per click which is where you know you pay for a campaign on google google mm-hmm. throws up an ad you're kind of up and around it's fine. It'll drive some initial traffic, but if you don't have a specific call to action, you're not going to really get a whole lot out of it. What you really want to spend some money in is what we would kind of call organic SEO or offsite uh, uh, SEO. And specifically, you want to do it for the market that you're in. So you can do geocentric um, 
SEO. And there and there are places like I think I did it on Fiverr, like which I don't know if you guys know what Fiverr is. Yeah. It's a great website yep. where you can pay people nominal money for for things. I think I spent like a total of three hundred bucks and I, I hired five or six different um SEO people that were doing kind of like various things, like backlinking and geocentric stuff and whatever. And I, so I paid out some money and I gave them like the key terms that I want people to look for. So if somebody's looking for a Detroit filmmaker or they're looking for, you know, whatever, these are the things that I want to do. And they go through and they, and you, you pay money, you do that. And then you see literally zero effect, um, <laughs> for probably four or five months. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're just like, great. I just threw money away. And as a small business owner, you know, that's, that's a, that's a chunk of change. But what that is going to do for you over time is that is going to establish you in search engines um, as what, what we like to call like a resident expert, right? So if somebody is starting to search for those things, your name is the one that's going to keep coming up. So I would say at this point, two thirds of the business that Nice Shirt gets is unsolicited inbound uh, traffic from the web. So, yeah, I'd say probably 60, 65% of our clients that come in wow. are coming from, hey, I looked up, you know, up people in your area for this thing. You guys, the ones, let's do some work together. Um, and those relationships start a couple of different ways. So, you know, it, we do a lot with clients who are in L.A. or San Fran or New York. Right. And and the reason why they come here is, you know, it would start with something like a case study video. Hey, we've got a client out there. We want to do a video. It's, you know, more cost effective to hire a local production company. Uh, you guys came up. You want to shoot that. Great. And then that's the start of a relationship that, that we go through, you know, and, and, and do it that way. Um, it could be a, a, a global company or a nation nationwide company that has a presence here. So, um we first got connected to Adidas because one of their flagship stores is in the Detroit area. And so they wanted to do like internal training stuff. They reached out, Hey, can you help with, you know, this internal training stuff? That's great. That's fine. Uh, also, by the way, Adidas, here's this cool spec ad we shot for a sneaker, mm. you know, and, and, and you kind of build it that way. But I think the most important thing for business owners other than having a presence be on social media be on linkedin be you know in the web um building that that seo is is massive um the other thing is uh google my business right so so google has the the my business thing where you can set your business up on the map like so when people are searching for things on google maps like it'll pop up that way um, set up a Google My Business account. It's free, and it is uh, going to assist with the rest of that SEO. So you know you can you can get ratings from cl favorable clients. Don't reach out to clients you have bad relationships with. They won't leave you the reviews you want. <laughs> but if you got good relationships with good clients, get them to give you reviews. Be on Google Maps. Show up in Google Search, and and you will be blown away by over time. It's not going to happen overnight, but over time, just how much that engine is going to drive traffic for you. And that's so important too. The it is time. It's kind. Of, it's a time game, kind of like the social and YouTube as well. Like a lot of people starting out, even even we have clients. We're like, we, we want to be big so quick, and you're like, bro, you got to start now, and you can expect results in six months to maybe two or three years, depending on how much you're investing into yeah. your strategy and into 
uh, production and, and spending in this. And we, we've done some SEO, same thing. It's like the results come way later, but it's worth it, you know? And, and to your point too, Absolutely. the, uh, the Google, um, Google, my business, man, such a huge player now, especially with Google rolling out how they do the pages. Now it's infinity scroll, right? So it's not like you're on page three. It's like, no, you're, you're number 21 or you're number three and that whatever it is, but then Google, my business, man, they've dropped that right on on top of all of that. And I feel like with everybody connected with distance and time and, and maps, you know, when you're, when it happens to me all the time, I'm driving somewhere. I need to stop. I mean, this is a kind of a lame, uh, uh, scenario, but like I need <laughs> coffee, right? I need coffee and Wi-Fi. headed to this podcast. I needed to get some work done. I, uh, you know, you pull up Google my business and you find the closest one with the greatest ratings. You, you jump in and, and read, make sure that, you know, yeah, the Wi-Fi is good here. Okay, cool. Like I'm going to go try this one. You know, same thing I think happens on businesses on multiple levels. That peer review is so strong 100%. and Google is using that to move you up in that. And so if you're the first coffee shop because, but you're a little bit farther away, totally. but you've got, you know, 400,000 reviews, that's going to catch my eye, yeah. you know? And so... Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. The um, it's credibility too, yeah. like for your brand. Like when you're good at when you're looking for a restaurant to eat at, or you're looking for a contractor to, you know, a, a plumber to fix, you know, a toilet in the house. It's like I'm gonna look up who the best rated person is, and nine times out of ten, I'm finding, you know, someone off Google even before word of mouth recommendation. If it's you know, like a restaurant or a contractor, uh, I just go straight to Google and find someone. Garrett, I got to know, cause you know, we've invested in SEO and, and, and different, and we love Fiverr. Fiverr is awesome, but we actually, you know, use the SEO company as well. Do you, do you guys, um, continue to use Fiverr or do y'all have like full-time SEO or do you just kind of dip into Fiverr and, and get what you need when you need it? Yeah, I, I just dip in when I need it. So I I used to to be on on the SEO side of things, mm -hmm. where it's like you do the monthly retainer and you go through and you're you're paying the deal. I I have because my business's website um, doesn't change all that often, right? Like I, I it's all static, so I, I'm not running a blog off of it. I'm not adding new content to it. Um, for the way that I've structured my website, I didn't feel as though having a, a monthly SEO was going to give me the return. So what I will do is anytime I refresh the website, mm. right? So if I'm going to change the page structure, or I'm going to change the site map, or I'm going to add content or whatever, I'll go through and I'll do another batch of, of hiring SEO vendors to go through and recache the site and, and do all of that. Um, but I think probably over the last... 10 years, I think I've maybe invested a grand in mm. SEO total. Mm. Um, and because the site is, is stationary, like it's not, it, you know, it's not changing. Um, it, it, I, it doesn't need to be crawled all the time. Right. Like, yeah. so uh, we, we are still getting a ton of inbound traffic with it just sitting up there. Love it. I'm taking notes over yep. here, over That's here. Good, I'm going <laughs> to revisit our strategy. Yeah. And also it's what you do with it too. I think Garrett made a great point. It's the Adidas example you talked about, right? They reached out. They wanted to do the training video. I think other people need to hear this, and when we believe in this too, spec ads, spec shoots, man, are so important because if you want to do the work, if you wanna, if you wanna do projects, like nobody's gonna come to you. I just had a, 
a good talk with a, a actor who wants to direct and and he was like nobody's coming to me and giving me 1.5 million to direct a you know low budget feature it's like yeah you we, you've got to do the spec work you got to show that you're capable of doing that and so it's what you do with that seo too like like you guys are already mastered you know and and we love to try to do too is like when you establish the relationship then show you them the value of what you can do even if it's not in your portfolio go out and create that um, and if you have a case study too on top of that, you show that ROI, you show that value that you are going to add in that project. So important in the power of sales. 100%. I want to transition out of SEO for a second and get into uh, I could talk to Garrett all like, day about sales gotta get and on marketing. Stuff yeah, okay, SEO. all right. Yeah, break us up for a second. But one of your missions is that you bridge the technical and financial gap for filmmakers today. What does that mean to you and why is that important to you, man? So, so this even kind of breaks away from nice shirt a little bit and kind of gets more into kind of the, the rest of the stuff that I'm doing online. Um, as you know, and as most small business owners know, the, the way that you learn traditionally is by screwing up, right? Like the, the, the fastest way that you learn, the fastest way that you grow, the fastest way that you pivot is by the mistakes that you make along the way. Um, which is an unfortunate way to learn because, you know, that's a client relationship, right? That, that's a, a, a future contract that is a, a vendor that there's, there's, there's collateral, um, with learning through mistakes and you can by no means eliminate all of those. Um, but going back to, to the top, when you guys were reading the letter from, from the, the president of American cinematography. Um, having a network, right? Having mentors, having people around that can help kind of guide and steer the ship a little bit, or at least give some outside perspective, uh, can really help minimize the amount of speed bumps that you have on the racetrack. So when I first started this YouTube channel, that I am very infrequently posting on. Um, the idea was what's the kind of content that I wish was available to me when I was starting out? Mm. Like how, how can I provide something that's going to um, help minimize those growing pains? Cause you're not going to rid all of them, but some of them. So, you know, it took me, years to figure out how to effectively communicate a mood board, right? It took me years to figure out what is somebody actually looking for in a technical proposal um, or how to bid on an RFP or, or you know, even just like how a, a camera functions, right? We, we live in a world where cameras are, are all so amazing. Like what this iPhone 15 does is, is light years ahead of the, the first DSLR that I had, right? And with that... People think that just because I have a Sony camera that can shoot at 150,000 ISO means that I can shoot and I don't need to worry about having lights. Mm. I was like, well, no, not, not really. I mean, you can, but that's not what's going to give you the best result, give your client the best result, whatever. So I started the YouTube channel with kind of that in mind of how can I help bridge the gap of the inside baseball 
that comes with the world of filmmaking and people who may not have access to the same level of resource of going to a film school or or having access to really high-end gear and how do you make those two worlds accessible to where if you do only have an iPhone, right? You can still produce content that has value because you've got the toolkit that you need. Um, and that then, of course, has transitioned into now I, I teach at a film school myself, uh, which is a great kind of resource pool for content for online, because if my students are asking questions, there's chances are that other people have those questions. And then also how the public speaking thing kind of kicked off of how do we educate people in a way that is accessible, in a way that is practical, um, in, in, in this, in filmmaking, there's the, the gear acquisition syndrome, the gas syndrome, where uh, everybody feels like, hey, that, Sony the just dropped the, <laughs> the, oh, dude, all, all the time, all the time. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that like, you know, I, I tell my students all the time, buying a new camera is just going to uh, show how shitty your work is in, in higher quality, right? <laughs> like, it, it's, it's not going to make you better. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's figuring out how to communicate those things in a way that, that helps people focus on the things that are important and kind of ignore the rest of the noise. Dude, I love that so much. Um, I am, I suffer from gear acquisition syndrome. Joey's got a lot, Joey's got a lot of gas. Yeah. I have so much I, I feel gas. like most filmmakers do though, you know, and, and that's a... Like we all you, do. Yeah. It's a disease that we all are constantly fighting. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta ask you Garrett too. So I, I taught at a um, university here in uh, Dallas just for a short time, like a couple of semesters and I was teaching post-production and I, do you feel like you get to learn, like relearn so much when you teach them? Like I felt like, and I was like, well, maybe I'm a bad teacher cause I'm not like getting enough value to them. But I was like, I'm walking away with theory and concepts and strategy because I had to prep for those classes. But do you feel like, you know, the old saying, the teacher learns more than the student, right? Do you feel like, uh, Absolutely. That, yeah, I, I don't think that there's a better, I don't think that there's a better way to learn than to teach. Mm. And, and I think that that there's kind of two things in that. And you don't have to be a teacher at a film school or anything to, to do that. But like, if you have ever had somebody shadow you on a film set, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about yeah. where it's like, you know, you, you have a, a, a grip or a PA or somebody who's in your department, who's, who's shadowing you, right. They're learning how to be a second or a first or, or, or whatever. And, and they'll ask questions that I have never even thought about, mm. you know, where, where, or, or the way that they ask it is a thing that like is a, is an approach that I never would have considered. And so when you're teaching, you have to know the material so well that, that you're able to convey that material to somebody. But then you also have to be so familiar or continue to become more familiar because the questions that you're going to get are coming from a completely different line of thinking mm. than, than mine. So like when I learned filmmaking, the first film school I went to, like we were still shooting on film. Like, you mm. know, we still had a physical media that we were filming on. And now, you know, I, I had a student ask why, why the iPhone makes the weird sound when the shutter goes off, like when you, when you push the button to take a photo, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, well, I guess you've never had a camera that's had a mechanical shutter. Like you wouldn't like, so the, you're just the, the way that, that 
you have to think through things as a teacher is just um, ridiculous. It's it's awesome. It's cool. It, it keeps me sharp. Um, but like, you know, they'll, they'll even introduce me to like musical artists. Like, Hey, I watched this music video from this artist. Like, how did they shoot this shot? Well, I've never heard of the person that you're talking mm. about. So let's start there. Right? <laughs> let's watch that video. Okay. Now let's break it now. Right. So like, it's, it's kind of this, this, this way of, 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 uh, keeping me from turning into a curmudgeon old man. Um, but yeah, you, you, you gotta, you gotta know your stuff. And if I, and I tell my students, if I don't know the answer, I'll go and I'll research it and I'll figure it out. I'll come back to you with an answer. I love so it, man. It, it is cool. As, as yeah. a film professor, who do you feel like film school is for? Because it's not for everyone. In your opinion, who do you feel like film school is a good fit for? Film school is mostly useless. Um, and I say this as somebody who teaches at one and I, and I tell my students this all the time, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying anything that I don't say in the classroom. There's, there's two things that you can get at a film school that you simply cannot get elsewhere in the same, in the same way, right? So you can learn the mechanics online. You can learn trends online. You can learn post-production online. You can learn how things function. All of the, the the technical mechanical components of all of that, that's all free on the internet already, right? Like you can go through and spend your time and do that and learn all of that. The two things that you get at film school that you don't get through those mediums is you don't get uh, peer review, feedback, and networking. Right. Mm. So the YouTube comment section, even on on the most wholesome of YouTube channels, is not going to be something that's going to replace a true peer review where you mm. have produced a thing. We sit down, we examine that thing. You're hearing from filmmakers at your level, ask questions and critique. And then you're also hearing from, you know, instructors, faculty, admin at a different level kind of speaking into that. So you, you don't get that critical level of, of feedback, which is one of the ways, especially when you're starting out, that you get your sharpest, right? Because we all fall in love with our own work to a degree where the work suffers for it. Mm. Where if you don't have somebody who comes in with a scalpel and says, hey, cut this, trim this, this doesn't work, that works, change this, flip this, kill that, right? If you don't have that, you're going to think that you're a lot better than you are, right? Mm. That's just the way that it works. The other thing that you don't get traditionally um, is access and resource. So uh, the film school that I teach at, you know, there are cameras, there are lights, there are lenses, there are computer editing bays. There are all of the tools that you would need to be able to do a thing without necessarily having any upfront investment costs on the part of the student. Mm. So some of the students that I teach, you know, they don't have the kind of money that would be required for the level of skill that they have as a filmmaker, Mm. right? But because they have the access and the resource to lighting kits, to, uh, you know, cinema cameras, to lenses and things, they're able to produce content at a level that is more reflective of their skill set than they otherwise would be able to have, right? And we can get into how you build a business and how you invest in gear and all of that stuff. But again, like everything else, that takes time. So film school is valuable for those two things. If you feel like you want to go to film school so you can like learn how to make movies, watch movies, get on film sets, right? Um, um, 
go on YouTube. There, there are a lot of good voices. There are some idiots on YouTube as there are anywhere, but like there are places that you can learn all of that stuff. Um, but the value of film school is building a network. You'll find people that you'll be able to work with for years and years and years, the, the peer review and then the access to resources. Those are the things that, that, that it's good for. So well said. Yeah, yeah, man. And it's so great to hear that too, from a professor that actually teaches at a university, like the value points, because both of us went to film school. Um, Bella back there, our tech went to film school. Like, uh, you know, we come from that world and I see, you know, the biggest things that, that I got from it was the networking piece. And, and I was one of the the guys that like, struggled to buy a Canon T5i and I was like, I'm going to use this camera instead of the, the cinema camera that they have for me. And I'm going to like learn how to use the camera that, you know, I'm going to go try to freelance off of down the road. I was that kid, but, um, you know, hearing the, the value points, because to your point, there is value in those areas. Like I wouldn't have met Shane had I not gone to film school. We got connected through an alumni affiliation, like Facebook page. And had I never gone to film school, I would have never met the person that cattle, like, like, like I said in the beginning was the mentor that helped me slingshot my career forward much faster than I would have had I just gone out and done everything without that mentor who, who was giving me the peer review, who was, you know, a, a guiding, you know, coach there in the beginning of me, you know, getting started. So I love hearing that feedback. I got to tell myself I did film school completely wrong because, <laughs> oh, I think it was oh five to oh nine, took a couple extra laps. And, you know, I didn't network as much as I should have. I did a lot of that after college, unfortunately. And then the access to gear, same thing. Like I like, you know, I wanted to use my own cameras and stuff. So if you're listening to this episode and, uh, Go into film school, do what Garrett said. 100%. Don't do what I did. 100%. <laughs> do as I say, not as I did. Yeah. Well, bro, uh, <clears throat> one last thing before uh, before we wrap you out of here. You are a self-proclaimed whiskey enthusiast, mm. man. What are the top three whiskeys that I should be sipping on Ooh. by the end of this episode? Great question. <laughs> oh, man, that's a good question. You should have prepped me for that beforehand. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh Whiskey's a wild world, man. Uh, <laughs> I am the type of whiskey collector. So I, I have a whiskey collection. I've got about 140 whiskeys oh right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you a picture. It's it's kind of fun. Send me a bottle. Uh, collected over years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to send him a bottle. Yeah, I'm really easy to buy for. Um, so, But I'm I'm the type of whiskey drinker where uh, I'm trying to find the the – the best whiskey at a particular price point, right? Mm -hmm. So there are people who they'll spend two grand on a bottle. Mm. In my humble opinion, there isn't a whiskey good enough in the world to justify that cost, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, yeah. it's whiskey. Um, so I am a bourbon fan. Mm. Uh, if we're kind of getting into the, the types of whiskey, um, but there are, at various price points, there are great whiskeys. I mean, I think that if you're looking for a solid kind of just sipping whiskey in like the $40 price point, um, Michter's, uh, they don't, um, they don't distill their own whiskey, but they source their own whiskey, uh, from an OEM outfit, but they, they source fantastic whiskey. So anything Michter's is really, really good. Um, 
probably the best cheap whiskey that you're going to be able to find is either going to be like benchmark number eight or old overholt. Um, those two you can find for less than 20 bucks and they're both fantastic whiskeys. Um, I'm a fan of Elijah Craig. I like the way Elijah Shout Craig, Elijah. uh, yes. tastes fantastic stuff. Um, and then there are some whiskeys that they're not expensive, but, uh, they're just impossible to find it depending on where you are in the country. Yeah. You know, they're more or less expensive. My favorite all-time whiskey is Old Weller 107, um, which I think like state minimum, it's like 35, 40 bucks. Um, but it's so hard to find that when you find yeah. a bottle, somebody wants to charge you 200 bucks. For yes. it. Don't, don't spend, it's not $200 whiskey, it's, no. but it's great $40 whiskey. I love so, it, man. There you go. There's yeah, I'm a, a I'm a Buffalo Trace. Yeah. I'm a Buffalo Trace kind of guy most of the time. Uh, and I just Buffalo found... Trace is impossible to find up here. We can't oh, find it. Really? Anywhere. Yeah, really? it's, it's super yeah. common no, down here. It's like can't get it. All right, now we know what to ship him. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, I would not be mad at yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Man, have you had uh, yeah. Angels Envy? Have you had Angels Envy? Yeah, I love their I love their bourbon. I hate their rye. Their rye tastes like maple syrup to me. But yeah. I do like their their bourbon a lot the port mm. finish is good there's mm. a really cheap one i think it's yeah. called early times uh and i'm a Ooh. big fan of that it's like a very cheap uh one of the like i don't know it's got like some premium sticker about its distilling process and i forget the name but uh early times man must That's have been real one. good he forgot everything <laughs> yeah. about the bottle <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> Well, bro, we uh, we appreciate all of the knowledge and insights into this, man. I know that you're pouring a lot back into the filmmaking community through education, you know, even being here on this podcast. And so we appreciate you pouring back into the filmmaking community to help those who came after you do a better job um, at a more economic price point than uh, sometimes going to film school, even though sometimes going to film school is the best way to learn from you. So um, anyway, man, we appreciate you being here. Before we wrap you out of here, we got five questions that we like to quickly ask each of our guests. And if you could go back and do it all again differently, what is one thing that you would change in your career? Uh, invest in lights. Mm. Um, when people start out, they want to buy cameras. They want to buy the sexy stuff. The sexy stuff doesn't make good movies. Uh, in terms of, like of order of operations, invest in lights first, lenses second, camera near the bottom of the list. If you've got good lights and a shit camera, you're going to make good movies. If you've got a great that. camera and no lights, you're not making a good movie. Mm. So good. So, so Pro good. point. Yes. What excites you the most about the current film industry or market? It's never been more accessible. Um, I, I think that it is so cool, both from a technology standpoint and from where we are socially right now, um, we're hearing from more perspectives. We're hearing from more voices and more people who traditionally have not been able to make a wave or a splash in this community are starting to. Um, and I like that a lot. Mm. You can make higher end movies for a lot less money. And you don't have to be some rich guy's nephew in order to get something financed and, and made. And I think that's the coolest thing in the world. Mm. I love it, man. I love it. What is one piece of advice that you can give to filmmakers trying to grow in their craft or their business? Finish. Mm. Um, any movie that gets made is a miracle. Any movie that, that gets completed mm. is, is, is an unbelievable feat. Um, you're going to hate it. You're going to think that it's the worst thing that you've ever made, and it probably is. But finish it. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how many people have gotten 80% of the way through a project and bailed and started something else. Um, if you want to get better, finish the thing that you're doing. 
That is the soundbite that's going on Instagram right there. <laughs> that is so, so true. And it's so easy for creatives, you know, to get swept away in the excitement of the next idea. But, you know, one of the um, one of the biggest things that I have really tried to work on in the last three years is finish building the bridge that you set out to build initially. If you finish the bridge to get where you're going and you focus 100% of your effort on not being distracted by the next shiny object, you are gonna have a more productive career and, and just finishing the projects that you set out. It's so easy to do the first, you know, 20% of a project from like 25 to, you know, 90% is, you know, you're in the trenches and you have to see it through. And a lot of times, once you get to the 90%, um, you know, point, where it's like, all right, I got the last little bit, like you can get it done. But when you stomach through the trenches of the the middle, that is where, you know, a lot of people fall short and don't make don't make the content that they could have. So Yeah, and, and I mean jumping in on the narrative side, we had some great talks with the Dallas Film Commissioner and some other producers, and it's like you think about just like you said, just finishing a feature film is accomplishment whether it's greater or or terrible and when a financier or or you know um agency or anything uh the market is looking at your work and you know you look at somebody that has you know th 30 short films but zero features or you look at a person that has one feature and zero short films and they're making a feature you go well it's, it's the feature guy right. every time because mm -hmm. that guy finishes yep. that guy finishes yeah yep i love it where do you feel like we as an industry are headed in filmmaking and what should we be focusing on? Oh man. Okay. So this is the inverse of, of the last thing that I said. Um, because there are more and more voices that are, are getting into this industry and because it is more accessible and there's far fewer barriers to entry. Um, I think we're going to hit a saturation point in the same way we did with websites where everybody now is going to be able to make great video, right? The, the quality is not going to be the thing that separates you. The thing that is going to separate you is going to be your distinct voice in it. Um, and I think finding your voice is a hard thing to do because it takes time. Um, in one of the classes that I teach, I, I it's in cinematography one, the first assignment is to find a, a 20 to 30 second scene from a movie or a show that you like and to perfectly shot for shot recreate it. Mm. Um, and the reason why that's the first assignment that's handed out on day one is because it does two things. One, it shows you just how much intention goes into every aspect of crafting a frame. Um, but the other thing is, is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how good of a filmmaker you are, you're not going to do it the exact same way because what you're bringing to the table is different. Mm. And that exercise helps people start to identify what are the things that I like to do? What's the visual language that I like to carry? How do I want the world to see the, the, the film that I'm creating or the story that I'm telling? So I think that finding your voice, both visually as a cinematographer, narratively as, as a director, right? Whatever your aspect of filmmaking is, that's the thing that's going to set you apart because everybody's going to be making killer video and your voice and how you tell stories is going to be the only thing that makes you different. Mm. Dude, 
I could not agree more. That was very, very well said. Sound bites all day. <clears throat> sound bites all on day. Sound bites. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Pro tips. All right, last question for you, and we'll get you out of here, man. Who is one filmmaker that you admire and why? Oh, man. <laughs> one? <laughs> Gotta pick one, man. Ugh. Um, I mean, there's a couple. There's, there's a I got, let me think here. One filmmaker that I admire. Um, Rachel Morrison's amazing. Her, her work is, is incredible. The way that she lenses and frames things is, is pretty nuts from a visual standpoint. I think I tried to reach um, out to her to get her on the podcast and I didn't hear back from her. So. Oh my God. You absolutely should. <laughs> she, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to keep amazing. knocking on her amazing. door because her work is awesome. Her work, everything she does is just unbelievable. Um, I think the the best movie I've seen in the last ten years, um, just top to bottom, is probably Everything Everywhere All at Once. Dude, I um, have been wanting to watch this the, movie. Yeah. It, oh, have... the the thing that's going to really make you mad, and it makes me mad every time I watch the movie, is that the VFX team is entirely self taught. Um, hmm. and so when you watch the movie and you see the visual effects on it and see what they did just by figuring it out is, is mind bending. Um, but everything that they did, the writing is incredible. The, the, the framing is incredible. The story is incredible. Um, I mean, they, they it's just top to bottom what indie filmmaking should be. Mm. Um, so everybody involved with that is, wow. is on my list right now. I love that. That's awesome, man. That's homework. Wait, movie night. Dude, Soon? it's been, Let's it's, it's it. literally on my, my, phone of like movies to watch and I, I think it's like only on showtimes or or something like that that i don't have and so i need to just pay for the we'll, we'll the find a friend with yeah. a login yeah i'm gonna use the company card chain <laughs> and go. i'm gonna buy it so, <laughs> anyway uh dude garrett this garrett this has been an incredible episode thank you so much for coming by the studio today man we appreciate all of your wisdom and insight man uh this was a really enjoyable episode so thank you again for coming by the studio for those that want to get connected with you what's the best way to get in touch man uh, best way to get in touch is on Instagram. You can just reach me at my name, Garrett Sammons. Uh, it's where I'm most active. Um, so if you've got questions, comments, things you guys want to talk about, DM me there. That's where I'm most active. Um, YouTube, also just my name, Garrett Sammons. Uh, far more infrequent on there than I'd like to be, but that's where kind of the, the more deep dive content goes. I love it, man. Well, you have some really great content that has been fun to watch. I, I, I caught up on a bunch of it before uh, this episode, and he's got some really, really great stuff. He's a good follow for sure. So highly recommend it man thank you again for coming by the studio this has been an incredible episode of the rough cut club and we will see you all next time thanks